So today we're turning to the book of Obadiah. It's actually only one chapter, so this will be the one time in this series where we read the entire book. So um, we're going to turn to Obadiah. It's between Amos and Jonah. So we're looking this summer uh, at the uh, 12 minor prophets. Now they are called minor not because they're less important, just because most of their books are smaller. And so uh, they're not like in the minor leagues of the prophets. They uh, just happen to be smaller books. But equally important, um, one thing that's kind of hit me as, we, as we've done this study that I hadn't really thought about is, you know, how many times the apostles, as they're reflecting on what Jesus has done, go back to these little books and say, hey, look at this is what's happening. So it's really made me see that they're more important. I've, I've enjoyed studying them in the past, but... Uh, For me, this has been a time to see it in a new way. And so today, uh, let's consider God's message for us through the book of Obadiah, through his prophecy, and let's listen carefully to God's word. The vision of Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise, let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves come to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, those understanding in the mountains of Esau? Your warriors, Teman, will be terrified. And everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth, nor gloat over in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of trouble. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy, and Jacob will possess his inheritance. Jacob will be a fire, and Joseph a flame. Esau will be stubble, and they will set him on fire and destroy him. There will be no survivors from Esau. The Lord has spoken. People from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau. And people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria. And Benjamin will possess Gilead. 
This company of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath. The exiles from Jerusalem who are in Sepharad will possess the towns of the Negev. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Edom, of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. This is God's word. Let's pray. O Lord our God in heaven, we thank you and praise you, O Lord, that you are pleased to speak to us and that you are pleased to reveal yourself. And though you are often different from what we expect, yet you are the God that we need. So help us, O Lord, to submit our hearts to what you would teach us about yourself today and to trust the God who is there, not a God that we would simply make in our own fashion, and that we will be corrected in our thinking by the prophets to see you as you really are in all your goodness and all your might and all your holiness and all your splendor and all your justice, that we'll have the vision that you gave long ago by your spirit to the prophet Obadiah. We thank you that you are here, working in every heart, healing every heart. And we pray, O Lord, that we would see that work today manifested before us. In Jesus' name, amen. Animals can fight against each other for food, for territory, for mates. But humans use their imagination to come up with all sorts of ways and all sorts of reasons to inflict cruelty upon each other way beyond what would even happen in the animal world. And so as we look at the world, we see many things that are simply horrific. And some of the worst are what human beings do to one another. A lot of that starts with the things that we desire, our greed, our avarice, our lusts. Once we get our eyes on something, then, then that can so possess our minds that we will get anyone out of the way who is in our way, that we will treat people without compassion, that we'll do the most ama- terrible things to get what we want. I was talking to uh, someone not too long ago They told me about how they had saved for years to build a business. And uh, then their their spouse left them, took every bit of money that had been saved, and put it in a place where that person could not get it. So that person went to court. And because the names were both on there, uh, there was nothing that could be done. And And they tried in many ways to get something done, but basically it was simply an injustice and that was the end of it. There was nothing that could be done. And in addition, that spouse (laughs) left that other spouse for another person. So you have that combined too. These are the sorts of things that we encounter. And uh, if we were to talk to one another today, I don't doubt that we would find many things like that. And these are the things that make us angry. And we need to see that anger is not something that is evil. Anger is something that is created by God to enable us to move to action in the case of injustice or obstacles. And so it's a God-created emotion. The trouble is we're not angry at the right times or the right places or to the right degree. And when we hold that anger in and it kind of gets deep into our hearts, it can embitter us and even bring destruction and dissolution to everyone and everything around us. 
So my question that I want us to answer from this book today, and I think that this book is answering for us, is how do we, what do we do with that anger? Or another way to ask it is, how do we keep the wrongdoer from wronging us twice? They wrong us by the wrong that they do, but then we experience another wrong when they let, we let the wrongdoer take over our heart and take over our lives and embitter us. Where do we go with that? Well, the prophet Obadiah provides for us a vision of God that can able, enable, us to move, uh, enable us to move past, past injustices. And he, and he does this not by ignoring the wrong that is committed, but by teaching us to commit the wrong to the God who writes all wrongs. And so that's what we're going to see in this book. So we're going to see the wrong that was done, the wrong of Edom. Then we're going to see its reckoning with God, that is Edom's reckoning with God, and then thirdly, the restoration of Israel. So three, three parts of this message. The, the wrong of Edom, the reckoning with God, and the restoration, the wrong, the reckoning, and the restoration. So let's consider first the wrong of Edom. So the, the name Edom, you'll see it's interchanged here with um, Esau, and just as Israel is another name for Jacob. So this is Jacob and Esau we're talking about. And if you read the book of Genesis, you'll find that these two brothers who were the children of Isaac and Rebekah. Isaac is the son of our father Abraham. And they wrestled, even in the womb. They were so active that Rebekah said, they're wrestling here in the womb. And if you hear about the rest of their lives, they're wrestling. And then their descendants keep wrestling. So just look up the word Edom in a concordance or on BibleGateway.com, and you will see Edom is like a continual threat, a continual enemy of Israel. And Obadiah talks about Edom. So Obadiah, we don't know much about him. We don't really know when he prophesied or who he is, but we know he's a prophet of God. We have this confirmed. Jesus confirmed the canon of the Old Testament, the books in the Old Testament, as being the books from God so we can trust him. We know they're the right books. And we don't know the specifics of the time in which he was speaking. However, it fits in with the overall situation that we find in the relationship of Israel and of Edom. So let's see. So in this, in this prophecy, Obadiah speaks of a wrong that Edom had done against Israel. So they did, he speaks of three things. He said they joined the attackers. So there was a, apparently they are being attacked by some powerful enemy. And when they're attacked, Edom doesn't help them. Instead, they join in in attacking Israel. Listen, verse 11. On the day you stood aloof, while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But they not only joined them, they gloated over Israel. Verse 12. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice 
over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. So they were happy about the wrongs that they were suffering from others. And then thirdly, they had no mercy on the victims. They, they actually, when people fled from Israel, fleeing this great enemy, the, uh, the Edomites attacked them and killed them. And if they didn't kill them, they, they captured them and they sold them into slavery and made a profit on them. And so it's that situation. Obadiah is talking about a real, deep, hurtful, painful, wrong, injustice that has been committed. So as you think about the wrong of Edom, what wrong have you experienced in your life? If someone was to say, who's really hurt you? Who's really done you wrong? What would you say? Where would you go? Maybe there's some that you think about every single day. Maybe some are hidden deep within. But I know that we have a lot of them here. It's a world where wrongs occur. And in the midst of that, we often ask, where is God in all that? Does God care? Is God listening? Does God see? Is God asleep? Why won't he wake up and do something? The vision of Obadiah assures us that that's not the case. That God does care, that he sees, and that he knows. And that's where we see Adam's reckoning with God. Whatever it may seem like, God sees, God hears, God knows. Listen verse 15. The day of the Lord, the day of judgment, the day of reckoning, the day when God rights all wrongs is near, not just for Edom, but for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Verse 15. And what this means is that God is going to make things right. That all the injustices, all the wrongs, he is going to make them right. He is a God of justice. And even if he doesn't do it right now, he will. The day of reckoning is coming. And he speaks specifically to Edom and addresses them and he tells them that as you have done, it will be done unto you. Now, there was a certain implausibility in Edom because Edom said, who can bring me down to the ground? And the reason for that was that Edom's capital or the center of the place where they live was way out in the desert. So it was difficult to even get there. They did it through, most likely through hidden cisterns where they could find water. So it would not be easy to get to Edom. If you got there, there was a winding path to get up into the rocks. And then from the rocks, they could attack you. It was a, and so you can see this today. You can see something what it was like if you go to the nation of Jordan, which is right next to Israel. And you can go visit one of the most well-visited sites of the modern world, which is the town of Petra. And uh, so you can look that up. You can see some of the pictures now, this town of Petra is not the town of the Edomites, but it's where they lived. That is, the, Petra, the ruins that you see there are the ruins of the Nabataeans who succeeded them in that place. And so, but still, it's kind of an amazing, it's really an amazing thing. It's a city, as one commentator said, single of its kind amid the works of men, completely built out of the rocks. And so, as you go there, you can see why they would boast that no one could take their city. 
As Albert Barnes said, in man's sight, Edom's boast was well-founded. Who can bring me down? But what before God? And so we need to see that there, in reality, what Obadiah is saying to them is there's no ultimate security in this life. So we rely on many things for security, to secure our future. We rely on armies. We rely on savings. We rely on homes. And we rely on people. But none of them provide ultimate security. At the same time, our tendency is to take these things that we rely on for security and make them much more of our security than we should. So oftentimes, we'll look at something and we'll say, who can bring me down to the ground? I'm in a good shape. I'm in a good position. And this is our pride. And indeed, much of our, many of our struggles in this life come from trying to find ultimate security and that which only can give a temporary security or a limited security. Our ultimate security is found only in our loving Heavenly Father who watches over us. However, because this is true, there is also no army, no fortress, no amount of savings, no home, no person that can keep us secure if God decides the day of reckoning has come. So, as with Edom, the pride of our heart often deceives us And God can decide that the day has come and nothing is going to help you. And that's what Obadiah says. For Edom, the day of reckoning would come and their mountain fortress would not save them. Listen to verses three and four. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights, who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars from there, I will bring you down, declares the Lord. And he even intimates how it would occur because you can build walls as high as you want and guard you from enemies without, but no high walls can guard you from treachery within. So listen to what he says in verse 7. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you but you will not detect it. And so, ultimately, God says, I am going to deal with you, and I'm going to bring destruction on you for what you have done. And indeed, that's what happened. As I noted, another nation came, dislodged them, and took their place. But this is, we shouldn't just think that Edom here is like the worst nation ever. It's not like he's saying it's only for Edom. In verse 15, He says, basically, all the nations should take notice. Every person needs to consider this because the day of the Lord is near for all nations. In other words, all wrongs will be dealt with. Every wrong that cuts us to a heart, that when we think about it, it causes us pain, is one that God is going to make right. That day is coming, and it will be completely satisfying. And that is certainly going to happen at the end of time, but it even happens in time. Read the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 12, King Herod, who's at the top of his game, decides in order to keep himself even higher, get get a little bit higher and gain more favor, he's going to put James to death. And he did, the apostle James. Then he puts Peter in prison. But then he goes over and he shows his glory, his splendor, 
to the people, and they say this is the voice of a God, not a man. And God sends an angel, and he kills him right there. God deals with injustice in time and at the end of time. So, what wrong against you keeps bothering you and making you angry? What would make you bitter? What are you carrying with you? The message of Obadiah is is one for you. That you don't have to carry that any longer. The Lord will deal with it definitively, decisively. We have a place to go with our anger. You can be sure that God will deal with the person, with each person, in his own time. No matter how great the wrong, the Lord is preparing a satisfying end for it all. So how does that work out? Well, let me give you an example from a woman I talked to many years ago. So she was talking to me about, about the fact that she would go to her family, and she was, she, her father was not um, the father of her siblings. So that was her stepfather. And her stepfather had dealt very roughly with her, but not with the other children that were his own. And so, and so any time that, um, that the other siblings would talk about the stepfather, her stepfather, she would get really angry. She would want to say something, and she would just want, it would just drive her to, to anger because she knew that that wasn't a complete story. He wasn't the good father they were talking about. She thought it was unjust to speak of him that way. And so as we talked, though, I, 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 sa- I said, you know, but sh- you could tell that this was something that had deeply hurt her. And uh, it, was, it was hard for me to hear. But you got to go somewhere with it because it was kind of eating away at her. And it was kinda, every time she got with, together with her family, she couldn't relate to them. Now, what I didn't say to her is, you need to join in with them and say, this man was a great father. That would not be according to truth. But what I did suggest to her, and what she began to implement, was to say, you can entrust your father to the Lord, and you don't necessarily have to do something to right the wrong at every moment. In that way, you can kind of let it go, and you can have confidence that the Lord deals with your father in his own way. And so you can trust your heavenly father with that person. And you may not say at your family gatherings that he is the greatest man ever, but you don't have to take it upon yourself to make sure that he is evaluated properly and to bring justice in that moment. You can trust your heavenly father with it. And so you can have freedom to just simply relate to your siblings. That's what it means to commit the wrong to our Heavenly Father who rights all wrongs. Now, some of you may hear this and say, well, that sound, this sounds like a different God than what I've read about. This is the Old Testament. Well, what about the New Testament? Well, let me suggest to you that if you think that this sounds different than the New Testament, then you haven't read the New Testament carefully enough. If you look, for example, at Romans chapter 12, 
The Apostle Paul says there that we are not to take revenge, that we are to live at peace with all people, that we are to repay uh, evil with good. So how do we get the strength to do that? He doesn't say to them, pretend like the wrong committed against you is no problem. Pretend like it's not an injustice. Let's just say the person who put to death your fellow Christian is a great guy. No, he doesn't say that. He says, leave room for God's justice. For, he says, as it is written, and he goes to Deuteronomy, it is mine to avenge, says the Lord. I will repay. So you don't need to. You can let it go as far as you and commit it to the Lord. And know that that means that you don't have to think, well, then it won't be taken care of. It will be taken care of. The Lord will deal with it. In the end, every single one of us will be satisfied with what he's done. Now, the good news is God not only deals with the wrong, but he also brings restoration. And the end of this prophecy, he tells them, on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy, and Jacob will possess his inheritance. He gives this promise. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. In other words, it's not just that God will deal with the wrong, but he also brings restoration. Anything that is lost is not finally lost. God will restore all things in the end. Because God is a God who not only is just and brings judgment, but he is a God who restores and brings restoration. You can see this in the case of King David, who was persecuted by King Saul, had to flee for his life. But eventually, in God's own time, he brought down Saul and he raised up David to the throne. You can see this in the early church. The early church had to suffer for a long time, severe persecution, hiding in the rocks, as it were, from those who would take their lives simply for their faith in Jesus Christ. But in the end, God brought down those emperors and he restored the church and gave it a better place and it kept moving forward and it kept going out and expanding to the ends of the earth. And you can see this, of course, in Jesus himself. The Lord, is, Jesus was crucified and the Lord offered grace, but he also dealt with those who had crucified him and he not only dealt with them, he restored Jesus, raising him from the dead, seating him at his right hand. So we can be confident in that. Now, in this particular prophecy came to fulfillment in several stages. God did bring restoration. First, God brought the people back to the land. After they were exiled in Babylon, after they had experienced great devastation, so much hurt, people killed, they returned to the land and possessed it. So you can read about this in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. So people who had seen the destruction were able to come back. Secondly, it's fulfilled in the Maccabees, who actually were able to bring deliverance and bring independence to the nation of Israel. God brought restoration there. But ultimately, it's fulfilled in Christ, in that he suffered but was raised, and in that way, he is the deliverer who is exalted over the mountains of Esau. He is the one who is reigning right now over all the kingdoms, and in that way, we see it being fulfilled. If you look at the prophets, you will see that when they promise this time of deliverance, the apostles say, that time is right now because Jesus has come. So again, 
Compare the verses. Look at the references to the minor prophets in the New Testament, and you will see that there is a strong sense there amongst the apostles that what the prophets were talking about is now here because Jesus has died and has risen again. But of course, we also look for a further fulfillment when Christ returns. And then we will say truly and finally with Obadiah, the kingdom is the Lord's. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. In other words, the kingdom will be the Lord's. The last phrase from Obadiah. That is what we're looking forward to. We've seen it in Christ, so we have much more assurance that God is going to make things right than the people who heard this prophecy. We've seen God act. We've seen Christ come. We've seen him die. We've seen him be raised again. We've seen him exalted. We've seen the nations coming to him. But we're still experiencing the wrongs. We're still experiencing the injustices. We're still looking for further restoration. And that day is coming because Jesus is coming back. So in conclusion... Let me just say, this is a vision that we need. So that's one thing. We need to go back to these prophets. They have just the word that we tend to neglect in our own day. And and at the same time, it hurts us because we know there are wrongs out there. We have experienced great wrongs, and we grieve over them. And if we don't see the God of justice, then we won't know what to do with them. But the vision of Obadiah tells us that God is the God who rights all wrongs. And we can trust him with the wrongs that have been committed against us and against others. As we suffer wrongs, we also know that all those things we've lost will not be finally lost, but God is a God who restores. And so that is what God is doing for all his loved ones. And so we follow in Jesus' steps. And if we experience sufferings like this for a short time, we are sure to share in Christ's glorious resurrection. That's what we'd expect from the God of Obadiah. Amen.